Back in the 1960s, Dr. Frank Hibben, a former game commissioner, actually the chairman of the game commission, wanted to introduce species into areas that had little or no ungulate presence. So he came up with, along with the Department of Game and Fish, actually four different species that they wanted to investigate to see if we could introduce them here in New Mexico. The Siberian ibex, the Persian wild goat, or what we call today the Persian ibex, uh, of course, the oryx, Gimsbach, and the fourth one was the greater kudu. Hello, New Mexico. James Pippen here with another edition of the New Mexico Wildlife Podcast. Well, it's still summertime. There's still lots of opportunity to get out and do some summertime fishing, but there are folks that are already out starting their hunting seasons early, and these include hunts like the off-range oryx hunts and over-the-counter ibex, which are some pretty unique opportunities that we have here in New Mexico to view and hunt these species. So I wanted to talk all things oryx and ibex in New Mexico today. And to help us with that is the Southwest Regional Wildlife Biologist, Kevin Rodden. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Well, good morning, James. Thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity to visit about Oryx and Ibex in New Mexico. So again, thank you very much. Yeah, it should be fun. So to start off with, before we dive into the species, tell us a little bit about yourself, about where you're from. Are you a native to New Mexico? Yes, I actually uh, was born in Roswell. Uh, my family actually came to New Mexico back in the 1800s and, and settled over there around Tatum, uh, Clovis, uh, Red Lake, if anybody knows that country. So my roots are kind of uh, in New Mexico since the 1800s, uh, ranching background family over there. I, and spent pretty much my entire life in New Mexico except for a few years where I actually worked in uh, Texas on a game ranch down there and also for Arizona Game and Fish after I graduated from college. I went ahead and got my uh, wildlife science degree, bachelor's from New Mexico State University, and worked some odd jobs here and there for Forest Service, you know, as I was going to college. After I got out, I decided to go ahead and, and get a master's degree in, in uh, teaching. Both of my parents had been teachers through as I was growing up and thought, well, maybe that's kind of a, a good, well-rounded education, not only even if I use the degree, but it would be good to have that, that background. Eventually went to work for Arizona Game and Fish for about a year and a half, but always wanted to come back to New Mexico. As I was going to college, that was kind of my my goal was, was New Mexico Game and Fish, and and I was able to finally get that done uh, in 1999. And so I've been working for the department for, you know, going on uh, 23 years now. And it's it's been a, a phenomenal ride so far uh, up, up to this point. And what old jobs have you held while working for the department? Originally, I, I started out, I was hired on as a district officer trainee. So I was hired on in the law enforcement field and went to uh, Santa Fe and gained my law enforcement commission. 
and worked as the district officer. My first district was actually the uh, Daddle district west of Socorro and worked that for oh almost a couple of years and went over to Kimado as the southwest. At, at the time, we had different terminology between regions and areas, and at the time, it was a, the southwest area. And I was hired on as the Southwest Area Depredation Specialist and worked there for about a year. Here in Las Cruces, we have the area office, and it's been here for 30, 40 years. And a a position came open, and at the time, it was called the game manager position. And that had always been my goal when I first started working for the department. Law enforcement, very, very important, and I still feel that it is an extremely important part of wildlife management. My goal had always been, though, to do the biology, do the game management, and the game manager position came open, and I jumped on it. I said, well, this is kind of early on in my career, but this is the job I really wanted, and specifically, it was kind of termed the elk manager of the, of the Gila, and so it was a, it was a great position. I jumped, jumped on it very quickly and held that position for quite a while. And, and that position, um, which is now my current position of uh, regional wildlife biologist, is kind of morphed over the years. But it's, it's a fantastic position. About a year, I took the position of the statewide pronghorn deer biologist position, uh, but I was allowed to stay here in Las Cruces. And that was a, a an extremely fun-filled, busy, busy year. And I was pretty much all over the state conducting surveys, meetings we actually had the pronghorn workshop at the time and so that was that was a very very fun year but i decided to go back to the area region and became the habitat biologist at the time for the southwest area after doing that for a few years uh, this position came open uh, the southwest regional wildlife position and i decided to put in for that as I, it, it does more in line with the game, big game management that has always been my passion and moved over to that. And I've been in here since, uh, 2015, I believe, and, and currently going strong in this position. Nice. Nice. So it sounds like you've held quite a few of these area or, or regional positions for the Southwest. So what does that mean? What is the definition of that area or, or region? That's a great question, James. We, in, in New Mexico, of course, we have our uh, office, the uh, headquarters in Santa Fe, and then we have the four regions, uh, southeast, northeast, northwest, and southwest. And it, it's a very big region. It's from anywhere north where Unit 12 and Unit 13, Game Management Units 12 and 13, and encompasses to White Sands Missile Range all the way down to the Mexican border, and the Arizona state line. It's, it's a big area of responsibility, and in this position, that's something that I may be asked to run down to the boot hill one day and check on a, a mortality for bighorn sheep, you know, from the radio collars. Or I could be asked to go up to Kimado one day and evaluate a, a ranch that uh, has done habitat improvements for the elk landowner system or E plus. So the the job is very diverse and and it's a very big area. But I, I do like that from the sense of you don't know what you're doing from day to day. Uh, as a good example, we're going to be having an orcs meeting later on today with 
San Andres Wildlife Refuge and uh, White Sands Missile Range. And so that collaboration between agencies like that uh, is, is critical to game management. And I know that kind of goes into what you wanted to talk about today with the Oryx and Ibex. And that's a great example of, of, uh, it's not necessarily just the biology. It's the, it's the interactions between agencies. Uh, it's the social interactions between the agencies or the public. And we've kind of got to meld all of those things together as a regional wildlife biologist. And, and, and I guess that's why I like the position. Yeah, it sounds like a great job, very diverse. You had said earlier that originally you were the titled as the Gila elk biologist, so it sounds like it's morphed where you now cover pretty much all big game species within that quarter of the state. Yeah, absolutely, yes. And then those entail doing, you know, the the biological surveys, whether that's jumping in the helicopter and conducting elk surveys. Uh, in, in, you know, in the southwest part of the state or Ibex surveys, Oryx surveys in a plane and on white sands. It, it's all those species combined. And so, like I said, it, it's, it's very rewarding from that standpoint. You kind of have your hands in a lot of different things. Nice. Nice. Well, you had mentioned in that description both Oryx and Ibex. So let's, let's just dive right into those species. So those obviously are not native to New Mexico. So when were those species first introduced to the state and why was that done? Back in the 1960s, Dr. Frank Hibben, a former game commissioner, actually the chairman of the game commission, wanted to introduce species into areas that had little or no ungulate presence. So he came up with, along with the Department of Game and Fish, actually four different species that they wanted to investigate to see if we could introduce them here in New Mexico. The Siberian Ibex, the Persian Wild Goat, or what we call today the Persian Ibex, uh, of course, the Oryx, Gimsbach, and the fourth one was the Greater Kudu. And at the time, the federal law stated that you can bring in animals from their native lands uh, hold them in a facility, keep them there. Of course, they have to be uh, tested for disease, make sure that they're completely free of that disease. And we can only release their offspring. So what we did as a department back in the 60s built a facility there at Red Rock, New Mexico, which is currently used right now for desert bighorn sheep management. So, and this goes all the way back 60 plus years that we were starting to look into this. And all those four species were put into, uh, the facility, Red Rock facility. And, and real quick, I want to touch on that. Obviously the three species we introduced into New Mexico, Siberian ibex, Persian ibex, and oryx, uh, were eventually released, um, late sixties, early seventies. But, the greater kudu, and the only reference I could find to this, James, was, and I'll just read kind of verbatim, it says an unsuccessful attempt was made to release two young greater kudu, one male and one female, into the study pasture August 24, 1967. The male died almost immediately after release, and the female failed to survive the severe weather of December 1967. 
And it's actually really good always to go back, as you know, to, to, to look at the, the literature and look at the resources and say, well, exactly what, what was documented at the time. So, James, that's the only reference I could find in our entire files related to kudu. And I was always told, well, they couldn't survive the, the winter. But this statement only says one of them couldn't survive. So that could have been an individual response to the cold weather. But it is interesting to note that we actually investigated putting kudu in the state of New Mexico. So back in these late 60s, early 70s is when we took the offspring and put them in different places. Uh, the Siberian ibex, real quick, we actually put those up in the northeast part of the state in the Canadian River complex up there. A lot of deeded property, some state and BLM land up there. And, and again, investigating the history of this, I could only find references to, I believe it was 1985 was our, our 86 was our last uh, hunts for Siberian ibex where we were specifically targeting them. Uh, and so I don't know, you know, that's a long time, obviously, James, that I don't have any reports of Siberian Ibex since then, but uh, you never say never with wildlife. But the two species we currently have today that we do hunt, um, the Persian Ibex in the Florida Mountains and the Oryx on White Sands Missile Range, and they're going strong. The populations are doing well from the standpoint of we still have those hunting opportunities. When we originally uh, started the talks of of introducing exotics in New Mexico, it kind of goes back to what I said before about collaboration with federal agencies or other entities. And at the time, the Florida Mountains, which is primarily all Bureau of Land Management property with some state trust land and a little bit of deeded property, uh, we definitely wanted and had and, and needed their support in order to release the the ibex on the florida mountains and at the time the research that i've done is the the blm completely on board uh and supported this this program as long as uh we had some measures put in place that when the ibex you know got off the florida mountains into other mountain ranges we had ways to control that expansion and we wanted to make just keep them on the florida mountains and 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 again understanding wildlife they there's no boundaries to as long as there's not a high fence they're going to do what they do but we wanted to maintain the the main population on the florida mountains therefore we put a, a hunt structure in place that if they get off of that mountain range or off of that area that we have unlimited hunting opportunity statewide but mainly focused there in the in the boot hill that if uh if a population started to get established in other mountain ranges hunters could go in and manage those populations at a lower level understanding we'll never be able to get rid of those completely but that is the main focus same thing with with oryx the white sands missile range again an agency that you know the department of defense the main purpose of that uh, installation is for defense. And so it, it, it took a lot of meetings, a lot of collaboration, uh, to gain their support to put Oryx on White Sands Missile Range. 
with the same kind of thought process that we would want to maintain the population on white sands. And if they were to get off of white sands, we would use hunting as a way to manage those populations at a lower level. So James to, from that beginning in the 1970s to today, things have, have definitely, you know, ebbed and flowed throughout the years with populations or hunt structures, things like that. Uh, the main populations of ibex are on the Florida mountains, and the main population of oryx are on white sands miscellaneous. So that's what we kind of call our core populations, and that's where we're going to be managing more extensively with our hunting regulations and hunting season structures to focus and to give a better hunting experience. And some people want to call quality hunting experience, but that's where we can focus those quality hunts uh, on White Sands for Oryx and the Florida Mountains for, for Ibex. With the same opportunity, the more of a hunting opportunity outside those areas, which, again, can provide an incredible amount of hunting opportunity. It has for Oryx. Ibex, very, very limited hunting off of the Florida Mountains. It Typically what happens there, James, is when the population of Ibex it, it grows on the Florida mountains and just because of that uh, competition, you're going to see that movement and expansion off the Florida mountains onto other mountain ranges. And, uh, doing, looking at the harvest reports for the past few years, it's generally one to two to three ibex have been harvested off the Florida mountains in that statewide, uh, over the counter zone. Therefore, you can see there's not that many ibex that live off the florida mountains at this time okay okay but knowing that there is hunting opportunity for for oryx outside of white sands and knowing that populations do increase at times for the ibex why is that is it just that the the habitats are are so similar to their native ranges that that they're able to to thrive in new mexico do they have Predators, how have they been able to expand since releases in the 70s? Yeah, that's a great question. I think what I'd like to do is, is let's focus on ibex first. Uh, specifically, um, the, the Persian ibex, uh, they do very well. Uh, there, there's no doubt. They do very well in, in this habitat compared to its native range. Still impacted by environmental conditions. Um, and it, it still have impacts from predators. Uh, as a great example, whenever we're looking at, uh, we conduct our surveys and, and I'll just kind of throw in real quick, James, that we, we conduct two different surveys on the, the ibex in the Florida mountains. We do generally, um, an annual helicopter survey where we have, uh, of course the pilot and, and two observers. And just the, the nature of the survey itself, it's extremely difficult. In fact, it's almost impossible to gather that composition data, which is the male, female, or young, juvenile, just because of where they live and where they're, when you see them and what they're doing. So generally what we do is we get a total number, total count for that survey, and then we look at the adult uh, males, or billies is what they're called, uh, and, and not necessarily try to classify the, the the females or nannies compared to the kids because those are so hard to classify from the air. And also what we do is an annual ground survey 
where we have teams spread out throughout the mountain and uh, to count and classify. Again, knowing the limitations of a ground survey and not be able to see the entire mountain, the the goal is not to get a total count, uh, but the goal is to get a, a sample of the population. Sometimes we've done some very good ground surveys and have got counted a lot of ibex, but the, the goal is to get that composition data. So we what do we want really want to be looking at is our male to female to kid ratio. And those two metrics right there are used to, to to kind of get a population estimate, to get trends, you know, is the population going up, going down, staying stable. And that's where we can come in every four years and uh, set license numbers. Uh, our hunting seasons are, are pretty well set up. But in that sense, going back to environmental conditions impact those. And so whenever we do our ground surveys, you can definitely see uh, if it's been dry the, the previous year, uh, just like elk or deer, you're go- and especially in the in New Mexico, it, it impacts that uh, reproduction or their survivability of in recruitment. So we have a lower kid to nanny ratio. And so it, it, we've seen that over the years. It still impacts that population. And also on top of that, we do have predators. And, and whenever we do these ground surveys, we'll collect that data. If we see, you know, predators during the survey and we've been trying to collect, uh, the number of golden eagle sightings when we're down there, we don't have any data to look back to the 60s or 70s, but anecdotally, I, I just talked to quite a few people, and they think that we have more golden eagles now than we did back then. So that could definitely have an impact, and I've actually observed golden eagle hunting ibex uh, whenever we're doing these ground surveys. I've never seen them actually uh, catch one, but it, it's definitely great to observe their hunting behavior and see how the ibex are reacting to that. So all those factors combined, ibex are are impacted by not only environmental conditions but also but from predators as well. So whenever we're going in looking at license numbers, that will issue licenses for the male side, which are we do have a once in a lifetime hunt uh, for rifles. We do have some a couple of bow hunts. And a muzzleloader hunt as well as a youth hunt. So we, we've spread out that hunting opportunity amongst a lot of groups. But the main thing to manage that population is going to be the female hunts, female immature hunts. And we've done that throughout the years where we've had population management hunts. Currently we have those hunts in the rule in, uh, and we draw those every year. Therefore, when we see the population start to decline, where we can come in and focus directly on those female immature licenses, reduce those down because that is actually what manages your population, not necessarily killing males or not killing males. That won't drive the population up or down. So it's a great distinction between ibex and oryx, which is a completely different species, different conditions. And we can jump into that unless you had some more questions about ibex. Well, just just a couple of follow up questions. So you had mentioned the golden eagle. So are they 
focused more on the young, what you were calling the kids? Yes, yes. And, and again, that's something that, you know, these ibex are, they're not very big animals at all. And you're absolutely right that they'll focus on the young and, and typically they're born here early summer, you know, late spring, early summer. And, and when we conduct these ground surveys, which is typically around this August time frame, uh, we're going to be having one coming up here in about three or four weeks that the, those young are still young enough and small enough that the golden eagles uh, are going after them at that time frame. And that's where you see your biggest um, mortality is what we call it, uh, especially young of the year is is that first two, three, four months, depending on, you know, what body condition they're in. And, and so then, therefore, you'll see those golden eagles really focus at that time. Now, that's not to say we don't have other – we definitely have other predators on the Florida Mountains. Uh, mountain lion being probably the, the the main one other than golden eagles, but uh, bobcats, uh, foxes, uh, probably to a lesser extent. But uh, the kids or the young being so small, we're talking, you know, 10, 15, 20 pounds, depending on, on what age they are, that the bobcat can take them down. But – Mountain lions definitely are, will focus on on uh, you know whatever they find could be the young could they be the adults, and we find those every year from hunters or district officers patrolling the mountain. I'll be walking up and they'll find lion kills. Uh, and last year we actually found a, one as an adult uh, male, probably about I think it was about thirty nine forty inches, um, and so it was mature and it was a lion kill that had been stashed. So you definitely, again, have those predator impacts. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And then my other question was about the, the species itself. So where are these ibex native to, and are the Florida mountains really that similar to their native range? The ones that we brought over were from the Middle East, or Iran. Of course, there's a lot of different ibex species around the world, but the Persian is is there in the Middle East and in and all in that country. And I tried to watch videos and do some research of their native lands, and the, the habitat looks very, very, very similar. It's you know, especially from a distance, it's that rocky, nasty, steep country, and the ibex absolutely thrive in the Florida mountains. You know, definitely hunting ibex is is a challenge, and it's it's phenomenal if and when you can get drawn. You know, just like any other species, it's hard to get drawn for an ibex license. I, I challenge people to go out there and down to the Florida mountains, even if you don't have a hunting license, to just go down there with a good set of optics, uh, spotting scope, and go watch these ibex. So they're absolutely incredible animals. And how they navigate that terrain. And, and, you know, it's all, you know, life is definitely about perspective, James. But from that standpoint, when you're from the ground looking up at the mountainside and, 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 and it looks straight up and down from our perspective. And these ibex are almost jumping around on the cliff face like ping pong balls. So it truly is amazing to go down there and just watch these animals in their environment. And so it kind of goes back to, I think that's why they've done so well is that it's very similar to their native range where they have the deep 
cliffs, the, the country where they can, can evade predators. You know, we keep talking about predators, but they're still doing a very good job of evading the predators be, just because of that habitat and how they're able to navigate that terrain. You know, the pads on their, on their hooves are, are designed specifically for that. And, and so again, I just want to say that even if, you know, we don't have a hunting license in our pocket, sometimes it's nice to go down there and just look at these animals. Uh, cause it is absolutely incredible. For sure. For sure. It sounds very cool. So now that we've kind of covered Ibex, their management and, and kind of the, the hunting opportunities, let's flip sides and kind of do the same thing for Oryx and how they're managed and, and the surveys that are conducted for them and, and hunting opportunities there as well. You bet. Again, the, the core population, as, as I referenced before, uh, is White Sands Missile Range, and that's where we're going to focus our management um, from, you know, from here on out. Before I jump into that, I'll say that we, we currently have that understanding and agreements with uh, land management agencies outside the missile range to, and again, we won't eliminate the Oryx off range, but we'll try to minimize the numbers. Therefore, we have what we call our off-range oryx hunts. Uh, these hunts are not once in a lifetime, so it doesn't matter if you've ever held an oryx license. You can apply and draw these every year. We begin holding these hunts in uh, June of every year, and, and strictly that's just because of our draw cycle. We we have to be able to draw these licenses, get the licenses out, notify hunters. Therefore, we start hunting in June. And we go till the next March. So 10 months, uh, every year we have these off range hunts. We do have hunts of anybody that can apply. And then we have some specific hunts for youth only. So anybody under the age of 18 can apply and go hunting these off range. And, and again, these are month long hunts. And, and James, I wanted to point out really quickly that. Um, I, I do the harvest reports every year for Oryx and Ibex and, and the off range success rates have risen throughout the years and they kind of stabilized over the past few years right around that 50 to, to 55% success rate. However, this past year it jumped, uh, to 71% success rate. Wow. So therefore you're, you're seeing a lot of, populations that are probably uh, established themselves off range but you also have the the orcs that are coming off of white sands missile range and so hunters have the ability to target either one whether they're coming off range or they're hunting a little localized population that you find and you keep secret <laughs> so but it, it definitely shows that the population has has definitely is increasing do you think some of that is a product of COVID and that the off-range hunters... So so you basically, if you draw an off-range tag, you said we hunt 10 months out of the year. So do you basically have that entire month to hunt? James, I, I think you absolutely hit on something that I think you're absolutely right. People maybe had more time to spend out in the field because, as you said, it's a month-long hunt. Where for elk and deer, we typically have those five-day rifle or muzzleloader hunts, uh, very restrictive. And this is a month-long hunt, 30 to 31 days outside February, of course. 
which allows people to set their own hunt schedule and go out when they can. And so maybe that was a big part of it, James, is people had uh, a little bit more time on their hands uh, to go out and spend. And therefore, which that is a big thing about off-range orcs hunting is it's, it's, it's mostly about time. It's timing and just being at the right place at the right time because orcs move quite a bit on the landscape. Therefore, you know, using optics, good optics, uh, glassing large amount of country and, and moving around the country is, is tends to lead to better success rates. Therefore, that, that could be a big part of it, James, is people had a little bit more time on their hands, were able to get out and utilize that, that license, which is a month long. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Very cool. So obviously there's a lot of good opportunity to, uh, to hunt off range orcs then. Absolutely. Absolutely. But those are draw but, hunts as well. Those are draw hunts as well. Exactly. So during that draw two cycle, just for elk and, and deer, pronghorn, et cetera, you, we, you know, you have the, the hunts that you apply for specifically. Um, and so you can have up to three choices. So if, and again, I, I want to stress these are not once in a lifetime hunts and therefore anybody can apply for these hunts, uh, you know, during the draw cycle. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. And then it seems like there's, there's other opportunities as well for military and, and security badge hunts and things like that. Yes. Yeah. Where we manage our core population on white sands and, and we do beginning with our once in a lifetime hunts. And again, that, that is exactly the, the definition. Uh, we have some of these hunts that are designated once in a lifetime. You can only draw those hunts one time and then you're done. And we, we have several different places on range where we'll focus those hunters and the two main ranges that we're, we, we put hunters onto are the stallion range, which is the north kind of west portion of white sands missile range and then Rhodes canyon is uh is the central eastern kind of side of white sands missile range if you look at a map uh east west is kind of narrow and it goes north south uh you know i think it's about a hundred miles you know north to south maybe a little bit a little bit more in east west 40 to 50 miles. So it's a, it's a big missile range. But we focus the hunters on those two main ranges, uh, um, Stallion Range and Rhodes Canyon. We have once those once in a lifetime hunts. They, they start on a Friday and go Saturday and Sunday throughout the year. And I think we have, uh, currently eight or nine of those hunts right now that, that hunters can apply for. So therefore we want to maintain kind of a quality hunting experience for those once in a lifetime hunts. Cause again, you're only going to be able to draw those hunts one time and then that's it. The, the bag limit for those hunts are either sex and you're, and the hunter's able to choose what they want to, to harvest on that hunt. Uh, again, being limited on the, the days, two and a half days typically for that hunt. The population is doing very well. Hunters are still, we still have. Uh, above a 95% success rate for every one of those hunts. So it, it kind of comes down to the hunters are able to choose what they want to harvest on those hunts. And, and, and again, I, I, and I'll probably stress this several times today, James, is that White Sands Missile Range being 
the main focus is military defense or, or testing. Therefore, you know, Oryx hunts, uh, we have managers over there that do a phenomenal job and, and collaborate with the, the military to conduct these hunts every year. So it, it is truly a privilege that we're able to go out and hunt these every year with the understanding that military testing or whatever they're doing out there is a priority. So sometimes uh, uh, hunts have been moved or switched from one area to the other based on those. And so hunters definitely need to be uh, appreciative and understanding that their hunts could be changed because of that. It, it hasn't happened that much in my career, but it definitely has happened a couple of times and where we definitely need to be flexible. But I do want to say that again, White Sands is, is a testing facility and that's the main priority. So we, when we hold these hunts, we, we, we can't have a hunt every month like we do off range uh, on public land. And so we have to identify certain time frames to have these hunts. Therefore, we have our once lifetime hunts, but at the same time, we're going to offer some different hunting opportunities at the same time frame. And those being a good example are the broken horn oryx hunts. That, and, and that was purely not a biological reason why we put those into place. But quite a few years ago, uh, we had a game commission at the time had the thought, Hey, Let's go ahead and offer some more hunting opportunity on White Sands Missile Range for those who have already held their once-in-a-lifetime hunt. Therefore, we put in these broken horn oryx hunts. So by that definition, just what it says, that license holders of those hunts can only go out and harvest an animal that has a broken horn on one or both sides. And so – Again, not a biological consideration, but definitely one that gives opportunity to go hunt orcs on White Sands Miss Range, have a good hunting experience, look over quite a few orcs in those two and a half days, and uh, harvest an animal. And everyone who has eaten orcs understands how, how good they are, and it provides that hunting opportunity for, for hunters. We do have uh, one specific hunt for youth only and mobility impaired and that those hunts run concurrent on the same range but with lower license numbers because we definitely want to provide that hunting opportunity to the youth only and the mobility impaired at the same time frame as as we also have a a prowler hunt on white sands so there's definitely some good hunting uh, opportunities on white sands missile range other than that james we we definitely have opportunity to hunt a mcgregor range uh, and those hunts are designated every year uh, in our rules and regulations where we'll hold specific hunts on on McGregor Range. Very, very high success rate. Again, uh, those are two-day hunts. So, you know, you definitely got to come in, go out, and and focus on your harvest and, and get off. Uh, so in that sense, typically the, the population is going to be a little bit higher just because of the fewer number of days you're able to hunt out there. Other than that, we do have population management hunts, and population management hunts are designed to focus harvest on areas where we don't want to have a normal hunt. And when I say normal hunt, James, that's those hunts where you 
apply for every year and you get drawn specific hunt dates, specific areas. Population management hunts are designed to come in, be very flexible on, on the dates, the license numbers. Uh, sometimes those hunts are escorted and they can be anywhere on in and around White Sands, even White Sands Missile Range where we, we, we may not want to have a regular hunt. But San Andres Wildlife Refuge, uh, we do have population management hunts. Those are escorted that are sensitive areas and we want to be able to focus harvest on specific areas within San Andres. As well as Fort Bliss on the southern part of the range, Hornada Experimental Range, the Holloman Air Force Base over there by Alamogordo. Those are all good examples of where we can have population management hunts and focus harvest on specific areas where the population is starting to increase. And you had mentioned the, the security badge hunts, the population. Those are population management hunts. Those are held in typically more sensitive areas on White Sands Missile Range. Therefore, we, we have what we call security badge sponsors that are only allowed for people who have access to the range. They go through the background check, vetted to make sure that they can escort other population management hunters. And all of those population management hunts and hunters are put on a list. And when we decide how many licenses we want to issue for a specific area, specific dates, we'll call those hunters and, and ask if they want to, you know, participate in the hunt. Anytime we offer those hunts, hunters are more than willing to, to, to accept those hunts. Uh, even though it may be a limited time frame, limited area, just because of the opportunity to hunt oryx, which is absolutely incredible. I mean, they're they're big animals. They're they're phenomenal to to eat, and and so, and again, we've seen this, James. I think you you've seen this definitely. Our our demand for hunting licenses just has increased throughout the years, and we even had a record year this past year. So the opportunity to get out and hunt these animals uh, is getting harder, and, and hunters are definitely jumping on any opportunity they can. For sure. For sure. Just a, a follow-up question on the hunt structure. So you, you had talked about how in Ibex it's really broken out into males or billies and females and immatures and that you – manage your populations based on the harvest of, of those different cohorts. So why in Oryx are the bag limits for all these hunts um, either sex? It It is extremely hard, especially in a hunting situation, to determine or the difference between of a male and a female. There are small differences between the sexes. Typically, females will have narrower, thinner horns, but typically a little bit longer, whereas the bulls are going to be a little bit heavier, thicker, bigger rings. That's really the main thing is you definitely don't want to go out there and offer some of these hunts where, say, it's it's a female only and a hunter harvests a bull because they're so hard to tell. And you don't want to penalize those hunters. So those, those hunts have always been either sex. Back in, uh, I'll tell you a little story here. Um, in early 2000s, we had, uh, 
an airman actually out there on White Sands Missile Range was unfortunately killed uh, just because of some unexploded ordinances out there. A tragedy, and, and what happened after that is we, along with White Sands Missile Range, stopped hunting oryx for a year. And the oryx have an incredible amount of potential to increase their population. And in that, and I'll kind of touch on that in, in a few minutes, James. But in that time frame, the orcs population jumps, jumps significantly. And, you know, over the two, three year time frame after that. So we came in and, and along with White Sand Missile Range wanted to focus harvest on the females because that's how we wanted to reduce the population down a little bit. And we had female only hunts and, and those hunts were escorted by Either a department of game and fish personnel, you know, game wardens or biologists, uh, and also White Sands Missile Range game wardens or biologists. The, the bag limit was still, uh, you know, in either sex, but we wanted to, we kind of put in there, Hey, we want to focus on females. And so that was the goal. So legally we were good to harvest a male or a female, but at the end of the day, uh, it was 50-50. The harvest was male, 50% male, 50% female. So even trained, you know, escorts in a hunting situation where things can get kind of hectic, we were still having a hard time identifying a male versus a female. You see that to today. I mean, our population is, is increasing. We would like to kill more females, but it's a very tough in a hunting situation to, to go out there and identify a male versus a female unless you do definitely have a bull standing off by himself and you can watch him for a few minutes to determine. Hunters and guides have actually gotten very good at judging oryx throughout the years, but it's still, again, for 90% of our hunters out there in a hunting situation, it is very tough. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. And in that discussion, you were kind of talking about populations rising and population management. So let's talk a little bit about how those populations are monitored. I know you said in IBEX that those are, are helicopter surveys. How, how are Oryx surveys done? Back in oh, early 2000s with New Mexico State University and, and the Game and Fish, we came up with a, a technique, and it's a fixed wing or a plane. You know, a department owns its own airplane. Therefore, we can go out and conduct these surveys, but they're typically uh, annual basis. So every year we're going to go out and and conduct these uh, sightability surveys, input it into the model, and get more or less a population range or a, a trend more specifically on what these uh, orcs are doing. And we kind of focus those, James, on specific areas. And, again, it kind of comes back to what we said before about the stallion range is, is a survey area. Rhodes Canyon is a survey area. And we also have small missile range, and we do have – uh, Red Canyon, which Red Canyon being on the northeast portion of the range and kind of separate those out just because of there's such large areas and it typically takes two, three, even Rhodes Canyon takes four days to fly. So we'll have these sightability surveys and with these transects we'll fly north to south and then just kind of go east to west, uh, and, and count the number of animals and put it into this model get a population estimate and determine, okay, is the population, again, like IBEX, is it saying stable? Is it increasing? Is it decreasing? 
So we'll conduct those every year uh, on an annual basis. Again, with the caveat that we definitely have to coordinate with White Sands Missile Range. We have the access. We can fly. You know, they're doing the testing. with, with And so sometimes it's hard to get those things done, but we definitely try to get those done every year. One interesting, I mean, we definitely have conducted some ground surveys throughout the years as well. Last year being one we weren't able to do it because of COVID-19 restrictions. So we're hopefully getting, getting back to that, uh, you know, going forward in the future. And again, that's for, again, uh, you're not in a hunting situation, but you're doing a, conducting the ground surveys to get the composition data. So you want to get the males, the females, and the young. And and also what we collect there is uh, broken horn uh, data as well. Uh, you know what percentage of the population of the adults are, are have broken horns, and so we can kind of measure that through the years. Is it still appropriate to offer that hunting opportunity as well? But to answer your question, James, we definitely do a lot of different things, uh, and along with just uh, information collected where we don't fly, just from white sands personnel or game and fish personnel conducting other surveys on white sands missile range just out there looking at the anecdotal data. So all of that is, is definitely inputted into, uh, you know, kind of how we manage the license numbers. You you had said for, for IBEX that you were doing these ground surveys, these composition surveys in, in the summer months to get at recruitment and things like that. So is there a time of year for Oryx as well where you're looking at these young of the year, the composition? Is there a particular breeding season, birthing season, and then surveys that follow? You know, James, yes and no. I'm going to answer that question with a yes and a no. We Oryx are completely... A, a different animal and it, it's absolutely amazing. Uh, you know, just like any other species we have in New Mexico, you, on, on average, you have the one breeding season and elk is an example. Let's say one calf, potentially one calf per, per cow every year. With oryx, we, we have, to answer your question, we have kind of two birth pulses every year. And that's typically, uh, in, in the spring. Uh, and, and then we do have one definitely, you know, later on in the fall. And so when I say that, these oryx, they are breeding year round. And as an example, let's say an elk, it's one calf per year. Uh, whereas oryx, you're looking at 1.2 calves per year is what the literature and the research has shown here in New Mexico. So the potential for oryx increase, the population increase, is, is phenomenal when you're considering that they're breeding year-round. They can, you know, have a calf, and a month later, they're already pregnant again. And so that population, when we're when they're conducting these surveys, we will look at the male-to-female to, to young ratio, but it's not as important because we know that that you can't translate that into your normal wildlife terms of elk or deer. You have to think a little bit differently, understanding that they're going to be breeding year round. So a good example of that is when we're conducting our airplane surveys every year, 
we look at total number. And again, just like the Ibex, we're not going to be looking at male to female because you can't tell from the airplane. But you can tell uh, mature versus the young. And what we call those young are brownies. So it's kind of a distinction if you're looking down at the the gray, you know, pelt of a of an adult oryx, grayish, you know, tannish, versus the the young of the year, which are they're truly brown. I mean, they're distinctly a different color. So that's that's the information, the data that we gather from the airplane is the adults, the total number, and of course then the young. And so you can look at that every year and and compare as long as the surveys are conducted roughly at the same time frame and say, well, we, we have X number of brownies that we counted on this survey versus X number of last year. Uh, still understanding that it's not absolute because they may have a birth pulse one year that's different than the next um, just because of when they're breeding. So it, it's truly a, an amazing animal. You know, they don't have natural predators not like the ibex lions definitely i i and this is my only my opinion that they definitely will take down some calves every year i i'd be very hesitant to say that they're going to be taking down adult oryx you know fully a mature adult oryx uh just because they're able to defend themselves so well it definitely does happen but not that often and so other predators like that you don't have those predator impacts but you also have environmental factors and impacts just like any other species. And so when we have dry years, they're definitely going to have, you know, lower reproductive capability. And, and so those populations can be impacted by that. One significant a couple of events that happened in my career uh, back about, I think, eight or nine years ago, we had a freeze event that it got down below zero for several days. And w- what we saw after that, and I, I will say anecdotally, I, we don't have any data to support this, but hunters were saying there was more broken horns after that. Maybe they're more fragile because of the freeze. But we, what we definitely documented was frostbitten ears. And I mean, Truly, these ears were frostbitten and orcs would come in through the check station and, and uh, they'd be frostbit. And so they were cropped off. So we're seeing less of those orcs come through our check stations every year now. In fact, this past year, there was just a, uh, from what I know, just a few. And so you can see after eight or nine years that the, those have been harvested out. But it's interesting to have that environmental impact on, on uh, orcs. And, of course, that was an extreme event that we normally don't have here in New Mexico. For sure. It it sounds like, I mean, we've talked mainly about hunting, but, you know, we talked a little bit with the Ibex about how they're just this really cool animal and that um, even if you don't have a tag, you can go down and view them and maybe take some pictures and things like that. And so as you were talking and I was thinking about how cool these oryx are, are there opportunities to do the same with them or because they're on this, on a missile range, you really don't have that opportunity to just go out and view them or, or do some scouting or things like that? Uh, for anything on White Sands missile range or, or other properties, uh, you're not able to go out and, and look at these animals or, or scout for them. Let's say you, if you have a hunt, 
but anything off range, uh, Again, it would take a little bit of time, effort. You could definitely go find oryx populations off-range if, if you didn't have a, a license. You know, the Highway 70, which runs from uh, Las Cruces to Alamogordo, uh, you know, and, and that's a main public road highway. You can drive through there, and sometimes you can see oryx uh, right off of that, that highway. Uh, so it's interesting. Like I said, if you don't have a hunting license, you can still have opportunity to go out and look for these animals off-range or drive Highway 70 and potentially see an oryx. But for the main part of missile range, yeah, access is limited and non-existent, so you can't just go out and, and look for these animals. Mm-hmm. Are they, um, for, for a wildlife viewing or a hunting situation, are either species, oryx or ibex, can you pattern them or you so use some of those tactics that we use for other species? Are they successful in these situations or, or not really? With a little bit of homework, uh, ingenuity, I think definitely you can, uh, not necessarily for oryx other than, uh, maybe a good example of that is, uh, fence crossings. Oryx, uh, they focus their fence crossings underneath. So it may be an arroyo that's a little bit higher, uh, from the ground to the, that bottom strand. And so when you're out on the landscape, specifically off range, is that, you know, if you focus these fence crossings, you'll see that they'll, they'll utilize these throughout the year. So that may be an area where you, you could focus. And again, understanding it may be once every 30 days, <laughs> you know, just depending, it may be one animal. But if you're seeing that sign and doing your homework, doing your scouting, say, well, this guy's coming in every three or four days. Maybe I need to focus here. So glassing and, and spot and stalk are really your best techniques in either a hunting or even a wildlife photography situation. Absolutely correct. Yes, and that's for oryx. Now, ibex is a little bit different, I think, that uh, especially you know, depending on when your hunt is. And again, for everybody who out there and for people who have not, we do have the two bow hunts, and I, I want to specifically point those out. Very, typically very, very low success rate, you know, five, six, seven percent success rate. And it's called the toughest hunt in North America. Uh, I've personally done it twice with archery equipment and you can definitely focus your scouting and, and seeing what these animals are doing, uh, throughout the day, especially with a little bit of pressure. From what I've seen, they, they will use the same routes same funnel areas at times if they have that specific pressure. And I think that's where archery hunters could be uh, successful and uh, focusing on those areas, maybe doing your scouting uh, and saying, okay, I'm going to let other hunters maybe kind of pressure and move these animals around and I'm going to sit and wait for them to come through. And again, it's still a waiting game, but that could be a very, very good technique because uh, glassing uh, ibex from the bottom and then hiking up, trying to get above them with with archery equipment is extremely tough, and that's that's why I mean in that environment the success rates are so, so low. But if even if it may be the toughest hunt in North America, it may be the most rewarding, and that is uh, James. I'll kind of be selfish here and say that's kind of one of my ultimate goals in life is to harvest an ibex with a with a bow. Because I think that would be the ultimate hunting experience. Um, I've done it twice and been unsuccessful harvesting, but I've had uh, an incredible 
incredible hunting opportunity and experience doing that. So that's something that's unique to, you know, New Mexico with these, with these free ranging populations. You, you don't have those opportunities uh, in the United States. You do have them in, in Texas, not necessarily free ranging, but here hunters can come in, apply for a, a special draw license, go out and scout for these animals off the miss range, of course, pattern them, do your homework and, and have a phenomenal hunting experience for, for two species, uh, you know, exotics in New Mexico. And, and it, it's provided an incredible amount of hunting opportunity throughout the years. Well, I think we're, we're getting pretty close to running out of time for today. Do you have any last minute words of advice for folks that are wanting to get out and find orcs or ibex this year? Well, definitely. And again, as we touched on before, James, I think that, you know, drawing a license, uh, is very tough. And you can strategize and look at those. Uh, hunts that are you know less demand but it's 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 unique you can even if you don't have an orcs license and and that would be my suggestion or recommendation is let's say you apply over the next 10 years for or off-range orcs as an example and you may draw it three or four times you know depending on 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 the draw but in those other years you don't have the license you could uh, potentially go out, learn the country where these are at, and that just prepares yourself for when you do draw a license. You've already kind of done your homework. Call the biologist. Give me a call, uh, whether you have an orcs license or not. I, 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 I really enjoy visiting with hunters throughout the year on recommending what maps to get or what areas to focus on first, and then they can go out and look at the environment, see what whether it's rain there or not, uh, and, and look at the, the water tanks or the roads. So that's something a hunter can do every year and be prepared for when they do draw that license. They're already hit the ground running saying, well, I, you know, I know this road goes up here and there's a good glassing point over here. And it, it overlooks a ton of country, understanding that orcs move quite a bit throughout the year, that it may be different from one year to the next, but at least you're looking at the habitat, looking at the terrain seeing where you can find the animals and then going from there so that's probably my biggest thing is don't look at it as a one-year thing look at it as a 10 to 15 year process and each year the knowledge you gain from that previous year or previous scouting trip it just betters yourself for the future yeah that's that's great advice well i think that's about all we have time for today kevin thanks for joining us and teaching us all about oryx and ibex management in new mexico james uh, uh as always thank you for the opportunity and again i just want to couch that uh, i'm available to visit uh, anytime throughout the year again thanks for this opportunity to kind of throw out some information for anybody out there who's listening and have a great day well thanks again kevin and thank you all for tuning in today be sure and check out our other episodes and the new mexico wildlife newsletters and get outside and enjoy all the outdoor recreation opportunities that New Mexico has to offer. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.